0: A new thing. This is our theme for 2024, especially, especially the first two or three months of the year, but really throughout the whole of the year. Because I feel, and I don't want to make any be hyperbolic about this or or anything or grandiose, but I do feel, I just want to say this at the beginning, I really do feel that God is doing something new in the Watford Church. In fact, I think in our fellowship of churches, the churches of Christ around the United Kingdom and Ireland, I feel God is doing Something, some things that are new. God's going to do something new in hope worldwide. God's doing some fresh new things. I think some of those things are going to be things we really like. Because God does things often that we think, excellent, God, I like that. Like David getting baptized. That's a good thing. We're all happy about that. But there are sometimes God acts in ways that are new and are fit with his agenda, and frankly, we don't like. Like Jonah being told to go and preach to the Ninevites. That was God's plan. It was a wonderful thing. It was an awesome demonstration of God's grace. Jonah was not on board with that new thing. Are you with me? And I feel like as a church, I hope today this lesson will help us to kind of get our hearts and minds in gear for God to do new things in our lives and in our church. And Let's just talk about Watford since we're here. So what might God be doing, I knew, I'm not entirely sure. I don't know that he has to tell us in advance. But our heart's got to be ready. Our attitude's got to be right. And I think there's some wonderful things about Elijah that can help us to be in the right place spiritually for God to do new things here in and in our own lives. So that is my prayer. We're theming everything on Isaiah 43, 18 and 19, where God is speaking to his people in exile saying fresh new things are coming. don't dwell on the former things, don't dwell on the past. I'm doing a new thing. He's not saying forget the past. It wasn't valuable. He's just saying that you're not going to live there. You're not living in the past. I'm going to do a new thing. It's springing up. Can you, can you see it? Do you perceive it? I'm making a way in the wilderness, a place where you don't normally want to go. You don't want to have a way in the wilderness. You don't want to go on that journey. Streams in the wasteland, something, something good is coming. So here we are. At the beginning of a new year, January Janus, the uh, the uh, Roman god, looking both ways to the past and the future. That's where we are. We've had a few new things in our lives recently for Penny and myself. It was Talia's first Christmas. That was a new thing for her, little baby Talia, our granddaughter. It was her first Christmas, her first visit to our home, driving up from uh, Bristol. Uh, also, Talia's first visit to my parent, my father's house down in Kent. Uh, that's the Christmas Boxing Day meal down there with my father at the end. Of the table, most of you have met him, so her first visit down there, my granddaughter's first time uh, having a piano lesson, Uh, her very first piano lesson, I hope she learned well, and and also this is my first Christmas, Um, the first Christmas I've ever had with uh, Santa Christmas slipper socks, Uh, thank you Lorette, Uh, Lorette gave these to a matching pair to me and Penny, so we wore these all around our house over Christmas and New Year, I had contemplated preaching in them, um, it will be warmer than my shoes, but I think it might be a bit distracting. But there's a first time for everything, right? And God is, is doing new things, and I'm so excited uh, about the year ahead. I really, really am. So I hope that we can have some insight today from uh, what we see in Isaiah, uh, Isaiah's life. Now, who was Elijah? Rather, Sorry, who was Elijah? Elijah was a miracle-working prophet. Which marks him out because not all the prophets were miracle workers, at least not recorded. So he's an unusual prophet miracle worker. And what's the context of his situation? His situation is God's people are all over the place spiritually. They have lost the plot. Instead of worshipping Yahweh, their god who rescued them from Egypt, uh, they are worshipping the Baals, they are worshipping Asherah, I mean, uh, this other uh, pagan goddess, they've lost the plot spiritually, completely, they're in a bad way, Ahab, uh, uh, one of the descendants of David, has married Jezebel, who is a pagan princess, and who worships these pagan gods, and Elijah, well, well, we'll see more about what's going on with him in a minute, but he is an amazing person with an amazing past by the time we catch up with him in First Kings 19. So uh, what's going on? Uh, Jezebel is killing off the Lord's prophets. That's a bit like the equivalent of the prime minister of the country ordering that all the church ministers be killed like there's a, a hunt on by the police and the army for every church minister in the country, systematically hunting them down and uh, sticking a knife in them and making sure they are killed in the goriest way possible to dissuade anybody else who might like to be a minister of the gospel. And that may extend to the members, by the way, not just those uh, who are the ministers, but that that's the kind of context, right? That's what's going on. I mean, if we were meeting like this, it would be like the police coming through the door and taking me off or whoever's preaching off to jail. And then you'd never see them again. You wouldn't know where they were buried or nothing. They'd just be killed. This is the situation. That's what's going on with, with Jezebel. And uh, Ahab, who's the king, goes to meet Elijah. And he says to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? Like, as, as if Elijah is the problem. He says, "I haven't made trouble for Israel. You and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands, followed the Baals. Now, summon the people, um, summon the uh, summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel, and bring 400, the 450 prophets. So it's Elijah against 450." Bring those, the prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table, not literally, but metaphorically, they're being supplied by, supported by Jezebel. So one against 450. How do you like those odds? I mean, how would you feel? You against uh, 150. And so then what happens? Uh, He gets up onto the uh, mountain. In fact, I have, let's see. He's up on the mountain with the 450 prophets, and we learn in chapter 18 that there's a lot of dancing, and uh, the the prophets of uh, Baal and Asherah, they slash themselves with swords, they're getting into a frenzy, they are calling on their God, and uh, Elijah is uh, taunting them. Uh, I'm not sure that's something we should imitate, taunting others, but he does taunt them, uh, because their God does not answer, and he says, shout louder, surely he is a God, this is verse 27, perhaps, he is deep in thought. Poor God. He's, he's de- God, he's deep in thought. Or he's busy, or he's traveling. He's popped out to the shops, you know. Maybe he's sleeping. I must be awakened. So they shout loud, or they slash themselves. Blood flows from their own wounds. they frantic prophesying. There was no response. No one answer. I love this phrase. No one paid attention. <laughs> They're going into a frenzy, and people are like, Nothing important happening around here. Nothing to see here. It's just got boring because nothing's happening. Extraordinary. And then Elijah tells the people, Come over, and he does a proper sacrifice and pours water over all the sacrifices three times. And then he prays. And when he prays, he asks God to reveal who he is to the people. And it says, Fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood the stones and the soil, and also licked up the water in the trench. Now, I mean, it's one thing to have a fire that burns up the sacrifice and the wood, fine. But what about a fire that burns up the stones? I mean, this is not a normal fire. This is a divine fire. Nothing can stand in its way. And so this is what happens on Mount Carmel. By the way, I had a uh, made a visit to Mount Carmel a few years ago with uh, with Penny and this is the view from the top. This would have been Elijah's view and the, the people up there and the prophets that were up there. Uh, they wouldn't have seen an airport, as you can see in the distance, but you know, that, this was the, the plain out there around Mount Carmel, very high spot. You can see for miles and miles and miles, which means that all the Israelites within sight of that mountain. Even the ones not on the mountain would have seen that fire come down from heaven. And what would it remind them of? It would remind them of Sinai, the fire on the mountain. It would remind them of the fire that led God's people through the desert. God is once again with us. It would remind them of God's presence with them right there. So, Elijah, a man who understood the power of God, the power of God to do the impossible. All on his own, when he didn't have any other prophets, he didn't have any other friends, he didn't have a church, he was alone. You know, one of the things that's testing for you and me, it's not hard to be, it's not hard to be a Christian when you're here and sitting in the fourth row next to another Friend, you know, right? It's not hard to be a Christian. At least I hope it's not hard to be a Christian while you're actually at a church service. But generally speaking, that's not the hardest time, is it? It's when we are alone. When we're alone talking to a friend, when we're alone at work, when we're just, that's when it's harder. And I think one of the things that's amazing about Elijah is that he had that level of conviction, even when he was alone. And we need to remember that we are never really alone, are we? What did Jesus say? I am with you always, always, we're never alone. God may do some new things, they may be uncomfortable, but Jesus is with you. He's with you wherever you go. He's with you now, he's with you in your car, he's with you in your home, he's with you at your school, he's with you at your college, he's with you at your workplace. He's with you when you're having an argument with somebody. He's with you when you're being persecuted. He's with you always. To the end of the age. So what happens with Elijah and the people? The people now realize which side their bread is buttered and reject Asherah and they say, The Lord, He is God. The Lord, He is God. And so Elijah's faith turns the faith of a nation. Isn't this incredible? He changes the allegiance of an entire nation back to to Yahweh. The people repent. There's a spiritual revival. And what happens to the prophets of Baal? They are taken down into the valley. You saw the valley, the lower parts there on on the video earlier. They take them down to the valley and they slaughter them there. 450. Intense. That's his past. Now, what next for Elijah? He has an encounter with Jezebel. And Jezebel says this: May the gods deal with me if be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them, like one of the the prophets of Baal or Asherah slaughtered down in the valley. I'm gonna do that to you. Elijah's response. He's afraid and he ran for his life. I think that's quite an understandable reaction. I don't know that I would have done any different, frankly. He's terrified about what she says and what she plans to do. So what does he do? In chapter 19, he runs away for ran for his life. He goes to uh, Beersheba. He has a servant but leaves him there. He goes a, jour- a day's journey into the wilderness. He gets to a broom brush. Bush, sits down, prays that he might die. He is in despair. Uh, This might be the mountain. Uh, That might be the cave he ends up in, which we'll talk about in a minute. We're not entirely sure, but that's certainly in that kind of area. That's where he's ending up, in the wilderness. He says this in verse 4. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. End it. Kill me now, before Jezebel gets to me. I'd rather you kill me than Jezebel. It'd be a much quicker death, I'm sure that's how he's feeling now, he was the one saying, take those prophets, down to the Kidrob, take them into the valley, and slaughter them, and the the crowd went wild, yeah, this is a fun time to be a follower of Yahweh, let's go for it, and they go down and do that, and now he's like, no, 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 God, just, just kill me and God says to him when he's in the cave he says, what's been going on, and he says, well, I have been very zealous have been he says the Israelites, you know those Israelites those troublesome people, they rejected your covenant. And I'm the only one left. They slaughtered all your prophets. I'm the only one left. You see where he is now? I was zealous. Not so much now. And those Israelites, you know, they're really problematic. I mean, they are the ones who caused all the problems. And they're the reason I'm here. And, and I'm the only one left. It's, uh, I don't know if he's clinically depressed you can't make a diagnosis, right, on, through scripture, but he's definitely in a very low place, right? Compared, especially compared to where he was. I mean, he, he had the mountaintop experience of all mountaintop experiences. And now he's in the cave, metaphorically and literally. He's in the dark. Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever have that kind of day? We have, as Christians, we have our mountaintop experiences. There are those times when we pray for something and it happens and we're like, God, I prayed it in faith, but I never actually thought it might happen. And you've answered that prayer. Miraculous prayers answered. I remember praying for my fiance, Penny, before she was my wife and praying that she would become a Christian. And there were so many reasons why it shouldn't work. And she became a Christian and we got married. I mean, I'll never forget that answered prayer. I mean, David would never forget the day of his baptism. I won't forget mine. Bronwyn talked about hers. Mine was on the 2nd of November in 1984. I, Bronwyn, even though it was so long ago, I remember the smell of the building that we, it's funny, I remember the smell. It was a musty old built church building with a built-in baptistry, a bit bigger than this one. And uh, they had robes in this particular place. So I actually had a robe to get baptized in. It was a plastic robe, so it wasn't like that nice. It was blue plastic, but you know, it was a robe. I mean. But I, remember, I remember going under the water, I remember looking up, open my eyes, and I, I remember there was a light above the baptistry, right above it, exactly above it, and, and it was shining. I was like, maybe that's the Holy Spirit. But uh, it, it, I, I remember the details. We have those mountaintop experiences but then we have things that happen in our lives. We get ill, or someone we love gets ill or dies. Something we've invested our hearts in for a long time comes to nothing or, or evaporates. Things happen with our kids, for parents here especially, I think, that we just can't fathom and make sense of. What is God doing? That's where he is. He's paralyzed by fear, and I would think some blame and recrimination, but he's in the right place, actually. Although it's difficult, he's in the right place for God to do his work in him. How does God respond? To Elijah's uh, description of his situation. An angel comes and touches him twice, two different occasions. An angel comes, which is really, you can see it as God coming. I mean, it's an angel, but it's, that's how God worked in the Old Testament. So he comes and he touches him. There's something about being touched, a bit like being, giving, giving someone a hug when they're in need of a hug. He touches him. He's very tender with Elijah. He's patient. He gives him food, lets him sleep, lets him sleep twice. Tells him he needs to get um, get his strength back. The journey is too much for you, he says. He's understanding. God is kind with him. God engages with Elijah. He doesn't leave him off on his own devices in the wilderness or in the cave. Like, fine, Elijah, when you've repented, I'll come back and have a chat, okay? Sometimes, you know, we feel like that's the right thing to do. That's not God. He's like, I want to help you work through this. So I'm going to feed you, help you sleep, give you strength for the journey. And I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to question you. What are you doing here, Elijah? He asks questions. You notice again how God just doesn't wag his finger at Elijah and says, what on earth? Who do you think that was on the mountain? Who do you think allowed the, your, fire, your, your prayer to be answered? Who do you think? Come on, Jezebel. You're a friend of Jezebel. Come on, man. I'm God. I'm with you. He doesn't do that. He says, uh, what's going on? twice. What's going on? I love the way that God deals with Elijah here. And then God also reveals, he engages with him by revealing some of who he is, because I don't know all the reasons why God does this thing where in verse uh, chapter 19, verse 11 and following, we get the great and powerful wind that tore the mountains apart, shattered the rocks, and the, then the earthquake. And then after the earthquake, the fire and then the gentle whisper, but why the fire? Why the earthquake? Why the wind? Why so violent? I I wonder if it's partly God saying, you know what? I think you may have forgotten who I am. Let me show you a little bit of who I am. I'm the one that can, on command can send a wind that shatters rocks. I am the one who on command can start an earthquake. I am the one who on command can send this kind of fire. I guess similar to the fire that was on the mountain. Now, remember who you're dealing with here, Elijah. I, I actually... I am pretty powerful, you know. I wonder if he's helping him to regain faith in God's power. And he does then speak, and he does then direct Elijah. And he tells him to go back the way he came in verse 15, and uh, go and anoint Hazael, and anoint Jehu, and anoint Elisha, and it'll all work out fine. I still have hope for you. I still trust you can do something for me. I still have things for you to do. Go and go back and work with the people I'm going to provide you with. So just to wrap up, what's going on here? And what's the main thing that's going on here with Elijah? And how does this fit with perhaps us here and the theme of a new thing? Elijah, I think, after Jezebel's threat, thought, I've done my bit. And I've done a lot. I mean, he's done more than any of the other prophets of his day. So, he's done a lot. He's had a great impact. And I think he feels like, okay, Jezebel's after me. Fine. I mean, my legacy is good. You know? But God still has something new for him to do. He's not ready for it. He's got to anoint two uh, two leaders... And he's got to anoint Elisha, who's going to be his successor. He's got more to do. God isn't finished with him. He's not yet ready. He needs that downtime, somehow, for God to then be able to redirect him to a new thing. Something's going on there, and I think the issues are focus and openness. He's lost his focus and he's not open to God doing new things in his life. He regains his focus on who God is, and he regains a sense of openness to God doing something new in him. And when our eyes, when my eyes, when our eyes are focused on the wrong things, we cannot see God. We cannot see God doing new things. And we can't see the way that we can cooperate with him in those new things. But when our focus is on Jesus... Then our eyes are opened to what God can do. We've got to get our focus in the right place first. Um, Someone pointed me to this very cute video of a little puppy who's been brought up with rabbits. And as a result, the puppy hops like a rabbit. (laughs) Very cute, huh? You know, that's a bit like us. We tend to behave like that which we allow to influence us the most. We become more like whatever has our attention. It's up to us to deliberately put our attention on Jesus. No one's going to do it for you. No one's going to do it for me. We can help each other, and we should. But in the end, I've got to go away, and Monday morning, I've got to replace my focus on Jesus, and on Monday afternoon, and on Monday evening, and Tuesday morning. and you You know what I'm saying, right? And I think the question we need to ask ourselves is, what... What are the things that help us to keep our focus consistently on Jesus and to bring it back to Jesus when we lose it? What helps you? Because it might be different for you than me. Do you know what it is that helps you with your focus on Jesus? And if so, can you make sure that you somehow make that more part of your life and more of a habit? Keeping our focus on Jesus is so important. A few things I've been doing this year is uh, listening to the Bible being read to me in the mornings. That's helpful to me. I, a couple of chapters a day. Go through Job right now. Um, I've uh, I've started saying the Lord's Prayer first thing when I wake up. Uh, not every morning, but most mornings, as soon as I wake up before I get out of bed, I'll say the Lord's Prayer slowly to myself while I'm still lying in bed. If, uh, if Penny's still there, maybe just in my head, so I'm not waking her up if she's still asleep. Um, but I've I started doing that regularly, which has helped me, I think, very first thing in the morning. Um, what else might help, what, what might help you to keep your focus on Jesus? When, we, when our focus is on Jesus, it's easier to say no to the things that aren't that important. And the openness point, you know, openness um, is the way, having a spirit of openness is the way we open the door to God transforming us. We focus on Jesus, then God can do his work. Staying open to God, taking time to listen to him, creating enough margin in our lives where we can stop and pray and read and think and listen, asking, what is God up to? How can I cooperate? with him. Focus, our focus is how we engage with God, our openness is how God engages with us. Really we're talking about being a disciple, right? You think about the disciples of Jesus, it seems like almost every day Jesus did something that surprised them and it was a new thing. Dallas Willard said this about being a disciple. A disciple is a person who has decided that the most important thing in their life, is to learn how to do what Jesus said to do. Disciples simply are people who are constantly revising their affairs to carry through on their decision to follow Jesus. Constantly revising their affairs. What better time to do that than the beginning of the year? As a church and personally. Perhaps we need to take more time in January than we might think. You know, we can rush into the new year, right? Right? And we make we use resolutions or we just we got busy again. I like this quote Penny shared with me from somebody called Kaleson. Why not embrace the stillness of January? Find peace in the calm before the storm of the year unfolds. Calmness, stillness. I've decided to have a different approach to my year. In January, I normally try to be, you know, get really busy and do a lot of stuff, and and there is a lot to do. But this year, I've said no to a few things I would like to do, to create enough space where I can do more listening to God. And I'm really praying that by the end of January, I'll be ready for the rest of the year. It's not like I'm not gonna do anything, but I'm postponing some things, because I want to be ready and I don't know about you, but for me, Christmas and New Year are wonderful, but I find them very tiring. I get into January shattered, and everybody's like, yeah, let's go, it's January. I'm like, I need a couple of weeks off. And I think maybe God's telling me something. If I'm not refreshed, I need to not try just get going. Maybe I need some times of stillness with God. So, staying focused on Jesus, no matter what else. Is happening and praying to be open to new things. I believe if we do this thing we will see God do his new things and we'll be ready. We'll be ready for personally and as a church, focused on Jesus, open to new things, open to God doing new things. If we pray these two prayers, I think God will be glorified. I think we'll be ready and I think God will have a chance to do what he wants to do with us here. And we're going to take bread and wine in a moment, because that reminds us as to why our prayers why our prayers are answered. Why does God listen to us? It's because of Jesus, it's because He died on the cross for us, it's because He's taken away our sins so that we have access to the throne room of the heavenlies. So why don't we take a moment of quiet and stillness for a minute, and then I'll pray before we hand around the emblems that represent the body and blood of Christ. So. Bow your heads and your hearts with me for a moment of quiet. Heavenly Father, thank you for being always with us. Thank you for your companionship, your friendship, your support, your guidance, your protection. Thank you that we live under your grace. Thank you for the inspiring example of your servant Elijah. He really was a man just like us, with his highs and his lows. Father, help us to, to learn from him so that our highs can be, and our lows can both be useful in growing us into the likeness of Jesus, your son. Father, please help us to keep our focus on Jesus, to be disciples, conforming our lives to his. Help us, Father, to keep an open mind and an open heart to how you might use us Father, please show us whatever the new things are you want us to do in this congregation. Help us to be open and humble and receptive to you, to your work, to the Spirit. We thank you in the moment as we hold and take the bread and the wine. We thank you for that, that it reminds us and refreshes us with gratitude for what Jesus has done. Father, please use this to strengthen us to do your will this week. In Jesus' name, amen.